Great speech or wise speech is, is one of the fundamental topics and themes of our practice. And it's really, it's really a wonderful theme because it really opens up the possibility of us taking our daily life practice uh, more seriously and seeing that we actually have a tremendous amount of opportunities for practice. <coughs> Sometimes we think that, oh, I can only meditate 20 minutes a day. I only have 20 minutes a day for practice. But when we look at right speech, we see that we're actually speaking a great deal of the time. And if we think of our own talking to ourselves, (laughs) we're talking all the time. (laughs) And so, uh, right speech is, or we might call it wise speech, or a friend uh, who some of you may know, Heather Sundberg, who just walked in, she likes to call it right yabbering. <laughs> and so that's my, that's my theme for today. And I want to talk further first about uh, why right speech is important. Secondly, I want to talk about what the traditional teachings of the Buddha are about right speech. And thirdly, I want to talk about practicing right speech. And I want to today work with some of the fundamentals of right speech. And I'm, I'm scheduled to come back on June 19th. And in, in that time, I want to talk a little further about right speech, but particularly more about some of the ways of working with speech and communication in uh, challenging her difficult situations, like when we're triggered or, or reactive or having... Uh, um, unwise speech come at us. How do we work with that? So today, more on the fundamentals. Um, next time, more on working with speech in difficult conditions. And then the, my plan is for uh, a talk in July to talk about working with judgments, which partly came up with uh, your theme, your question. So I think it's, I think it's clear that our speech and our communication has great potential for both uh, causing harm and really helping us to live in a more loving and wise way. That we know from looking at the world that people's speech can cause tremendous harm, whether it's someone who feels not seen or, or judged harshly. and and that triggers all sorts of, um, over time, as it, from, from, from the growth of a child to being an adult, can trigger all sorts of um, uh, pathologies in the self. Words can trigger wars. Words, words can trigger conflicts. Uh, and yet words can also uh, bring about love, bring about understanding, bring about wisdom. The right words in certain situations can be incredibly healing, as we know. In fact, I think it's useful to remember that if we actually look at the Buddhist text, we find that actually, you know how most people in the text get enlightened? They don't do so by meditating. Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> but they actually, there are more, much more examples of people getting enlightened when they hear a talk, when you actually look at the text. <laughs> so it it could happen. 
<laughs> and so, and, and we, sometimes, we sometimes don't see this. I think sometimes in our uh, practice here, we sometimes overestimate meditation and um, sometimes underestimate the, the ability to use mindfulness and practice in all the other parts of our lives. And I think that our, our looking at speech is, as I said, particularly important because if we can somehow have our use of speech, talking, communication be more of a field of practice, our practice gets yet more alive. If we can be there uh, having the sense of, yes, now I'm practicing when we're on the telephone or when we're at work, uh, then we have a lot more time to, to practice. And so what I'd like to do is to give, hopefully, give some of the resources to help us do that. Now I'd like to actually invite you to, as you listen, consider right now that you're practicing aspects of right speech because uh, considered broadly, right or wise speech also includes listening. It, it really is anything to do with our use of language. And so you might ask yourself, how can my time through the rest of the session be part of practice? What helps me to be more present in my listening? And I'll talk more about that later, but for right now, you might just ask yourself, what helps me to be a good listener? And you might think, you might follow a guideline, which I find very helpful, of giving maybe 50% of your attention inwardly and 50% outwardly, not just listening to the words and forming the ideas, but also staying, if you can, with your body, with your heart, and tracking what your mind is doing as you listen. And this is, if you can start to explore that here, and many of you, I'm sure, are doing something like this already, this can, this can make the question of right speech not just an idea to be thought about, but something that increasingly becomes a practice for, for our daily lives. In the, in the suttas, the Buddha characteristically talked about four aspects of right speech. When you read the, when you read the text, there are always four aspects which are mentioned in, in so often. And I wanted to just read, to begin with, uh, two passages which capture some of the, which, which express those four aspects, and then talk individually about those four aspects. And then I'll, then I'll move on to talking about practicing right speech. So, in one of the texts, the Buddha says, how does an untrue person speak as an untrue person? So this is obviously going to be wrong speech. <laughs> okay. How does an untrue person speak as an untrue person? Here, an untrue person speaks false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. We'll, we'll treat each of those. <laughs> and how does a true person speak as a true person? Here a true person abstains from false speech, from malicious speech, from harsh speech, and from gossip, also known as idle chatter. And one other uh, longer passage, 
that also, you'll, you'll, you can also listen for those four qualities. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech. One speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable. One who is no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from malicious speech. One does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide people from each other. Nor does one repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those people. Thus, this person is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. Abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech. One speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, or courteous, desired by many and agreeable by many. Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip. One speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dhamma and the discipline. At the right time, one speaks such words as are worth recording. Reasonable, <laughs> moderate, and beneficial. That's from the, uh, this is from the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, Sutta 27, for those of you who might have that text. Now, I have found in reflecting on these four qualities that I would like to interpret them a little bit broadly, but I think fairly accurately in a way that actually emphasize, uh, emphasizes the positive and gives some handles that one can uh, remember in one's daily life. And so I, I took those four qualities, and the first one I talk about is truthfulness. The second one I talk about is helpfulness. The third one I talk about is kindness. And the fourth one, a little bit of a stretch, I talk about is clear intention. That's the one about related to gossip. Okay, So that's truthfulness, helpfulness, kindness, and clear intention. And these, if one takes those as guidelines, that's the starting point for working with right speech. So I want to talk briefly about each of those and then actually do some, do some practice together. Now, truthfulness may be one of the most obvious aspects of speech. Uh, and I think that probably most of us are probably pretty good with avoiding big lies. And that's for each person to say. Uh, and the action for us may be on the ways that we hedge truthfulness in various smaller ways, through uh, exaggerations and half-truths and omissions and you know all that, right? And so the, I think the invitation here is to begin inquiring in our lives, in our practice, about how we work with all of these qualities, with, with truthfulness, helpfulness, kindness, and clear intention. And we can start to examine more carefully how we work with speech, how we work, in this, in this case, <clears throat> with truthfulness. And in the Buddhist context, truthfulness is very actually very important. It's said that uh, a bodhisattva, one who is engaged on the path to 
to combine one's own practice with helping others, that the, all of the moral precepts should be broken before one breaks the precept of not lying or truthfulness, that there's some kind of centrality of this, this, this aspect of speech even before all others. And I think we know by looking at ourselves some of the reasons for that, that when we lie, it can set up either a kind of uh, agitation and reverberation inside, or we just start to dissociate, you know, that we divide off part of ourself from another part of ourself, you know, which, is, which is common. You know, I was thinking of, um, just came to mind, I was thinking of being very struck watching watching films of the family life of some of the commandants of the concentration camps, some of the Nazis, that when they actually, one could watch them being very kind and lovable around their dogs and their children in their nice villa (coughs) by the concentration camp. This is an extreme version of dissociation. But I think we may if when we lie, we sometimes have to do that just to preserve our, our coherence. And that's a, that's a, that's a very uh, heavy price to pay. And so the, the promotion of truthfulness, it, it works to have us be less agitated. Obviously, we know that when we don't tell the truth, even if we do half-truths, we, um, we have to keep track of a lot more than we do if we tell the truth, right? I mean, I have to know what I said to this person and that person, and you know, it gets very complicated and tricky, right? And it's a tremendous amount of mental energy when we don't tell the truth, that there's a certain simplicity and straightforwardness that we have when we tell the truth. And in the meditative context, their truth-telling is conducive to, to peace of mind and to the ability of the thoughts to settle. And I think that was very much um, in, in the, in the uh, mind of the Buddha when he was talking about truthfulness. So there, there, there are ways that we can be truthful or not truthful, and we can really look carefully at how we may be, uh, how we may exaggerate, how we may say certain things to promote a self-image, to make ourselves look good. In our own eyes or certain others' eyes, the way we may actually, in many important aspects of our life, not be honest with ourselves. I think that comes under truthfulness as well. You know, we can ask ourselves, uh, are there parts of our lives that we're, that we're really fooling ourselves about, that we're not really looking honestly at, that we're sort of hiding something from ourselves, because to face it would be difficult. And, and I think that that's there for probably all of us in some ways. And there's also uh, an amazing uh, lack of truthfulness often uh, in the world. We know that, um, we know that much of um, social life is based on not being truthful. Think of advertising, <laughs> or don't think of advertising. <laughs> you know, and it's also sad to say that uh, uh, often uh, public officials don't tell the truth. We know that that government, you know, and uh, and 
I, in, in thinking about this, I, I, just a few days ago, I came across a clipping that was very, very striking. It was from, it's from the Chronicle, and it was connected with the, uh, the case, some of you may know, of Jennifer Harbury. Some of you know she was, she's a lawyer whose husband uh, was uh, with the Guatemalan guerrillas and was killed you know, with U.S. compliance. She's mounting a lawsuit uh, based on the fact that she was deceived by the government officials, that they deliberately lied to her, and that if they hadn't lied, her husband might be alive. And the government defense is essentially a defense of the importance of lying. And I just wanted to read to you a passage, because it, it, was, it was kind of disturbing to read this. Um, the main lawyer said that if, if officials had to tell the truth, it would actually reduce their ability to tell the truth because they would fear being sued if they said anything that could later be characterized as being a lie. <laughs> it was uh, it's basically saying that it's important to lie because if we lie, we'll be more truthful. It's pretty close. Yeah. The, art, the, uh, the uh, lawyer argued that if she were, if she were to, be, to be permitted to press her claim, that it would reduce government candor because officials would fear being sued if they said anything that could later be characterized as a deliberate deception or lie. The U.S. Solicitor General, Theodore Olson, supported this argument. He said, this is, this is a quote, he warned the court to use utmost caution before interpreting the Constitution as guaranteeing citizens truthful responses. <laughs> he said, the government has to, this is a paraphrase, the government has to have the flexibility of lying when it wants to. Uh, I, this, I'll leave this up here if you want to look at it. It, it was—I I don't know if I've seen something like that, but it's—it's—it um, it was disturbing to me to read that. And it's—and um, so obviously we have a culture in which, in certain situations, there's support for lying. So I mean, that—that that raises a lot of questions about how we—how we practice right speech in a culture which doesn't always support it. You know, obviously. It's a mixed picture, but there, there are pressures, as we know, uh, against right speech. The second uh, aspect of right speech I call helpfulness, and this is, this is um, important because sometimes I know many of us may take truthfulness as a kind of absolute. And I think we know situations in which we've been very truthful but not very helpful or kind. Or have, uh, one example of this is in, you know, is in the very familiar personal relationships where people tell the truth actually with the interest of hurting, sometimes called dumping. <laughs> you know, and so it's very important in considering right speech to balance these different factors. That truthfulness by itself is not really adequate. And so we have to work 
with the qualities of helpfulness, kindness, and clear intention as well. Again, I think in, in using this as a guide to practice, we can just start looking at what are the conditions or factors which lead me not to be so helpful. What helps me be helpful? What helps me be helpful in my, in my use of speech? Um, what helps me to promote harmony? What helps me to uh, use my speech with the intention to help others? Again, it's a really, the practice is, I think, uh, both a looking into the ways that we are not so helpful, and it might be when we find ourselves, again, being very uh, self-centered or having something we really want that makes it very hard to be helpful, or just being confused. And so we can begin to look further into this. And on the other side, we can have the clear intention to actually be helpful. The third aspect um, uh, I speak about is kindness or loving speech. And this is, this is the quality of actually having that, the quality of metta or the wish for the well-being of the other as a motivation for one's, one's own speech. And this is a very powerful aspect. It really means something like having the heart present when we speak and having that wish for the other's well-being uh, there. I, found, I find when I look at my own practice, for example, we might think of these four aspects. We might be stronger on some of them than on others. And we can really ask ourselves, where do I need to grow in these? I found when I looked at that myself that although I'm sometimes a pretty kind person, sometimes I'm not. I have a true confession. <laughs> and I found that when I looked at my, my own uh, use of speech, well, I'm pretty good on truthfulness, by and large, and pretty good on helpfulness, but I, didn't, I don't always find myself having that open heart in all of my conversations or all of my speech. So I was able to look at that and say, well, this is something that when I when I'm speaking, I can, I can work more with. And actually, I, I used as a practice that, uh, and partly this came out of, in, in one of the uh, small groups that I work with in Berkeley, we worked with right speech for about two months. Uh, and, and it was very helpful. And I found myself, when I was um, answering a telephone call, I would just sit there and the telephone would ring and I would say, truthfulness helpfulness, <laughs> kindness, and clear intention. And it just was happening, just because of the attention given in, in our group to write speech. And, I, I, and it, was, it was wonderful. I mean, it was, it was also, I, it first came the recognition that I wasn't always bringing all of those to my speech, but then having that be there was, uh, again, it, it made things very alive, and it was just so nice to remember to, to use the right speech and to be guided in that way in a conversation. Uh, so, so this kindness is just uh, something that some of us may have more naturally than others. And of course, we can develop it with the loving-kindness practice and with uh, other kinds of practices. And I'm, it's such an important quality of our speech. Uh, I, I was thinking of a story that actually my, uh, my mother told me a few days ago, which was of being at a lecture 
by Robert Lifton. Some of you may know his name. He's actually one of my teachers who, who has worked a lot on human rights. And he's a psychiatrist who's uh, written a lot of books. Um, and he was at a lecture. I forget what the subject was about, but it was a very, um, there, was, there was a time for questions. And someone from the audience asked the most, quote, the most stupid question. And the members of the audience just kind of gasped <laughs> for some reason. And uh, Lifton was very, very kind with her. He, he did not say, well, that's not what I meant at all, or something like that. He really approached her with great respect and said, well, you know, I wasn't exactly intending that, but I can see your point. And he took her in a way that didn't at all rebuke her for the comment and had a lot of respect for her as a human being who was doing the best she can. And it made, uh, that was many years ago, it made a tremendous impression on my mother so that she tells the, she still tells the story. And it, I think it shows the way that kindness in speech can have incredible power. Even, Robert Lifton may never have known that that, that happened but it had a tremendous power so that it serves as an example. When we speak kindly, particularly in a difficult or tense situation, we can inspire others and touch them in a very deep way because, because we know that that's hard. We know that we're usually triggered. And so that third aspect, again, very, very crucial, very, very central to the Buddha. And the fourth aspect is, is having clear intention. And this, this is really uh, my way to talk positively about this question of avoiding idle chatter. Uh, and it's really to look at the ways that when we don't have clear intention or when we're just kind of, uh, as it were, mindlessly speaking, we, we get into a lot of areas which are, we could say from a certain point of view, dangerous that we very easily, I think that the way, one of the reasons that gossip is criticized, and I think that you know, when I think of gossip, it's, it's the word sometimes refers to the negative features of backbiting and being malicious, but I think there are certain qualities of what we sometimes call gossip, which are just actually, you know, transmitting local news, <laughs> you know, and there are positive features of that, but so I think the what's being pointed to is particularly the malicious qualities or the, the kind of backbiting, the kind of talking about people behind their back, and those kind of very negative kinds of, of uh, speaking, which I think we all easily find ourselves uh, falling into. I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of his uh, practices, which he did at one point, was not to speak of a third person in the absence of that person. Some of you may have heard that story. It's a very interesting practice. You might try that for uh, you know, a day or two or a week or something and see what that does to your speech. Joseph said that when he did that practice, uh, about 80% of his speech uh, was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, uh, and I, again, I think it's that sense of clear intention is also to look at the way in which we use speech and talking to distract ourselves, to take ourselves away from what's most important. The way it's, it's almost like looking at how speech uh, serves like 
the television set that's always on. Right? There, there are ways that, that uh, when we don't have clear intention, as well as some of the other qualities, our speech can just be a way to dissipate energy and effectively to dissipate our lives, just in a kind of idle, continuous, uh, even obsessive chatter or talking. And it's not to say that uh, we should always just be somehow clear-intentioned and not speak unless we exactly know what's happening. That would be quite dreary as well. There's certainly, <laughs> certainly room for you know, the, the creativity of, of not knowing where we're going. But I think it's more to say, you know, maybe what's in the heart and what's really, what are we, what are we doing when we speak? Are we, are we just sort of lost? Are we trying to connect? Are we uh, wanting to communicate? And I think, again, as with all of these aspects, uh, the question is really one of uh, uh, investigating this, this beautiful quality of our practice that we if we're mindful, can really, um, can really use our lives as places of inquiry and fields of practice. And that we can learn from what we see. That the, the essence of this form of practice is that we look over and over again and we start to see some of the patterns which aren't so helpful. We do so, we continue inquiring when we, when we see something a hundred or a thousand times, we slowly understand that something is not helpful or that something is helpful. And that's, that's the nature of the practice. And when we extend mindfulness to our speech, we suddenly open up this, this uh, window where we can um, use so much of our lives as this inquiry so much of our lives to um, see how we're living. And we can do it in a light way. It doesn't have to be sort of heavy. Now I'm going to practice right speech, you know, and so on. We can really, we really can do it in, in a light way. Um, let, me, let me just finish. Actually, I'm, I, think, I think I'm going to leave more time for discussion and do the, and do the exercise next time, because I, I think I've, I've said enough to get us going. But I want to just close by talking about a few uh, guidelines for practicing right speech. The first is to have the clear intention that we're actually, that we're actually using our speech as a field of practice. The second is mindfulness. And the third is cultivating that open heart. And I think there are a lot of other things we could say about right speech, and I could, could talk about five or ten or twenty different techniques or perspectives, but those are very good for starters. So the first one is to really have this sense that my speech can be practiced. It's having that clear intention for my speech. One of the people in my groups uh, liked these four principles, and she was having difficult time with her teenage daughter. Some of you who have teenage daughters or sons may desperately want right speech to be a practice. <laughs> and and she, was, she was having these very difficult conversations where, where she would get lost with her daughter. And it was painful, of course. And so what she did was, you know, after working with right speech for about a month, 
she uh, wrote down these four principles on her hand. <laughs> Truthfulness, helpfulness, kindness, and clear intention. And she just, with, I don't know if her daughter knew that she had stuff written in her hand, but she would just have her hand, right? Of course, her hand wasn't too far away from her eyes. And as she was talking with her daughter, she just saw those. And she said, you know, over a week or two, things really shifted. Because she just kept coming back to that clear intention. And it's like we, that's why uh, we need that kind of, we need those reminders. That's why community is so important, because we remind each other. And a lot about, the, a lot of this practice is not so much about getting technically proficient in meditation. It's just remembering to be aware and remembering to have clear intention. And so she did that practice. She developed that clear intention by having them written on her hand. I know a te- technique that I do sometimes is um, one of the most difficult parts of my job is going to faculty meetings. Some of you may relate to that. And what I do is I put, I put a few words, I sometimes put those four words right in front of the table where I'm sitting. Or sometimes I've had other words that help me remember that being at the faculty meeting is practice. And we can use little tools like that to remind us, because I think it's the reminder that we really need. The second aspect is developing mindfulness in our speech. And hopefully we've been able to experiment with that some here in terms of our uh, being with our body, tracking what's happening internally, uh, as well as externally, a good guideline to use is can we, uh, can we, can we move towards, in our speech situations, having a significant amount of internal tracking so that we're really watching our own experience as we speak, so that we're being aware of our own reactions as we speak. That's a fundamental way to bring mindfulness to speech. For many people I know, it's very helpful to ground ourselves in our bodies. To, to one, so one thing to work with might be to, when you're speaking or listening, can you have some awareness of your bodies? It might be being with the breath, it might be being with the whole body, in a way so that we don't just go in, as it were, get lost in the thinking aspect of speech. But remember that we're here that we, we are beings with bodies and hearts as well as minds. Next time I'm going to talk particularly about cultivating mindfulness in difficult situations. You know, what do we do when we have reactivity? Because a lot of the damage that's done with, with speech comes when we're reactive. So I'm going, to, I'm going to save that for next time. And the last aspect of right speech is this quality of, of cultivating an open heart of being in our speech and and sometimes leading with our heart or making sure that the heart's there, that this goes a long way as a tool of practice. And it may be to, we may, to do that, we may need to practice the metta uh, often. So what does it take for us to bring the heart more into our speech? It's a question that we each can ask ourselves. And so, I think that I'll, I'll leave you there with, with uh, those uh, three guidelines for practice and those four principles. And really, um, I think invite us to 
uh, to consider practicing this and having our and, and really of strengthening that part of our practice which occurs off the cushion. If we can do that ourselves, there are many blessings that come. If we can convince the people with whom we work that right speech should be a consideration. You know, I know that sometimes at Buddhist peace fellowship meetings we, we uh, periodically go into silence and we try to cultivate as much mindfulness as possible during meetings. You know, there are sutras to be written about mindfulness at meetings. <laughs> and perhaps some of you will write those. <laughs> and it's, there's, a great ex- there's a tremendous amount of creativity in this area. It's, it's because it's really, the Buddha gave these principles, but he didn't talk so much about mindfulness at meetings. <laughs> he didn't talk so much about being with one's teenage daughter. He didn't talk about being at faculty meetings. And so I think that the invitation is really there for us all to explore and to share notes and to, uh, to bring this practice more and more into this very important part of our lives. So thank you very much. So we have about uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, I think we uh, may stop just a little bit before 11 for an announcement or two, but if we we can, if you have any questions or comments, uh, I'd be happy to respond to you. I really appreciated the talk. Um, One of the things I find myself doing is to um, lose track of attention and focusing on kindness and helpfulness and serving the people I'm with and trying to uh, answer their questions It's a great question, and there may be, um, I mean, a lot of us may have answers to that question, I think, but I'll, uh, and, and if other people have some, maybe they can, can speak up in a moment, but uh, one thing that I find help, very helpful for that is this constant uh, coming back, just, it's basically a checking in, so that I think it's very useful uh, to do what helps you to be in touch with your intentions. For me, it's very helpful, for example, during a meeting, if I'm feeling a little lost, long bathroom break. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you use that tool. <laughs> right? If you're feeling a little bit lost, um, um, take a walk for a minute or two. I mean, I, I know as a practice, what I, I do after lunch every day, where, wherever I am, I try to just take a walk. Uh, five or ten minutes, and just it, it really is very helpful for having that clear intention come back because I could be right in the middle of things and I get lost. So I think if that's happening, you might just uh, take a break more often, and that will help you to come back to your clear intention. It may need may lead you to make some adjustments, uh, and then of course you'd have to um, you might you might be able to just look at the situation and decide that you're talking too much to the people. You know, and, and this, uh, 
short, shorten them, but somehow it, there must be some kind of a, a draw, something must be, maybe you enjoy more talking to the people than you do doing your work. That could be. <laughs> right? So you just have to see that there may be some avoidance or some, some denial possibly at stake if you, if you look deeply. Uh, that's, is that a good start? Yeah. Um, what I really appreciated was something I never quite seen until a few minutes ago. In that very painful situation, yeah. for the first time in my life, I was the coach that decided not to. Yeah. And that was very painful and very difficult. And thinking all day, everything I could have done, ever developed inside of myself in terms of kindness and <laughs> I, I think it. I think it's recording. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. What's your name? David. David. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's 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 um, very very wise. I mean, I think it is hard to stay silent, you know, especially in the heat of things, you know. I mean, how many times have we wanted to stay silent, and then someone that we're having maybe some tension with, sort of wants to pull the negativity out of us. Have you experienced that? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's something that's very wise about, about silence at certain, kind, at certain times. And I think it's, it's, um, it's a tricky tool because, of course, one can be manipulative with saying, I'm not going to talk. And, and one has to be sensitive to the subtleties of one's motivation. <laughs> uh, but there's something that's 
I think, very important as a tool connected with right speech to really uh, have time out, take breaks. And, you know, there's... Um, some of you may know the, the great text of uh, Shantideva uh, called Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life in the 8th century. And over and over again in that text, he counsels when basically when you're caught up in a uh, conflicted state that is linked with greed, hatred, and delusion, be like a block of wood, he says. Be like a block of wood until it passes. And it's something, I think, again, the, the beauty of the, these suggestions is that we can all experiment with this in our lives. It's not like some esoteric meditation. We can really experiment with these, these, these tools. Uh, some of you may also know Thich Nhat Hanh has a very interesting uh, method which he calls peace treaty. Some of you may know this. It's talked about in the book called Touching Peace, I believe, which is uh, a set of guidelines which he uses for the community of Plum Village in, in France. And that involves uh, ways to work with conflict and anger. And of course, I'm going to talk more about this next time. But he suggests <coughs> that one should, if there's a conflict between people, that they should have a cooling off time. On the other hand, they should not postpone their discussion too long. He actually suggests uh, come back within the week, but you may need to have it cool off for a few days. And don't talk when you're right in the heat of anger. That's not, it's not likely to be that helpful. Okay. Thank, thank you, David. That there was some kind of self-deception going on? Yeah. 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 Well, how, how would you know, how would you investigate that? Did everyone hear the question? Okay. Um, how, would, how would one know that there was some kind of self-deception? What would you do to, as it were, be sensitive to that possibility? Do you have any? Yeah. Yeah. Some things that come to my mind would be to um, try to be ever more sensitive to his to be sensitive to the quality of being invested in a certain idea, being, as it were, attached, uh, having something be emotionally charged, the sort of the telltale signs that it's not completely clean, as it were. 
that there's some possibility that we're very invested in something being truthful and in us maybe communicating that, that seeming truth. Uh, those, those would be some things which come to mind that, that would help us. And I think it's the whole, the, the whole spirit of the practice is inquiry. That, that's very important for me. So it's really, it's not being hard on ourselves because we've done that, because we all do that. Um, but it's just uh, setting up the inquiry so that we can watch that as much as possible. So we become more familiar with our own tendencies or perhaps those around us to, to fool ourselves. And I think like you're saying, once you've seen it once, you might, you might reflect on what were the qualities there that might have tipped you off. We're probably pretty good with the people closest to us and knowing whether they're trying to deceive us, but we may, <laughs> right, we may not be so good with ourselves. Thank you. It's a great, it's a great question. What's, what's your name? Marjorie. Marjorie. Um, there, and maybe just a thing to start with. There's my experience is when I've spoken in a way that doesn't feel like wise speech. There's a certain uh, anguish that sometimes arises, which has pain to it. But there's also, I think it's good to know that there's a lot of wisdom there, and, and even compassion. So I think that. Um, it's actually this is a little um, sidebar, but there's actually there actually are technical terms in the Buddhist psychology for uh, the, and I know Sylvia probably talks about this because she loves these terms. Uh, they're called Hiri Anotapa. Has she talked about those at times? Well, F. I think she. I'm sure she has. Uh, Hiri is called moral dread. All the time, she loves those. And there's something, uh, there's something there that that's just a sort of a preface to responding. That there's something that is very healthy about uh, the anguish we feel when we've done something like that, uh, when we've said something uh, to someone we love or care for, or just in any situation where we realize we were um, had mixed motives or whatever. So how to how to rectify it? Again, probably different people here would have different ideas. But what what occurs to me 
would be to um, maybe just be go back to her and be direct and, and say, uh, I realized that a lot of what I was saying was coming out of whatever, coming out of my own pain, that the residues of pain from my own association there, and that I may have uh, really given an unbalanced picture. I may have, you know, uh, given, really emphasized some of the negative. And, and you, you might not need to add, and of course the negative is really there. <laughs> uh, but you, maybe, so that's where you can be careful. <laughs> because you're just repeating it. Uh, but just to say something like, I think I really was unbalanced. I emphasized the negative, and I'd really feel good if you would um, take what I said with some salt and try to have as fresh a look at the situation on your own as you can. Yeah, pr- well, that's, that, might get, that might get tricky, hearing your story. Right? It's like, she does protest too much or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, please. Let me take uh, just this will be the last question, I think. Well, uh, <laughs> and I'll be I'll be available in regards to okay. last yeah. statement. Yeah. I would still feel that I owe uh, my my loyalty to my friends to uh, say, are you interested in in my experience with these people? Yeah. See, see, my intention is not to harm the, the the company. My intention is to protect my friends. Very good. Who yeah. might be stepping into something which uh, he has, she or he has no uh, uh, is defenseless right. about. So I I would want them to do that to me. So therefore, I would do that to them, and and of course, preface it, it well in my humble opinion, and and So that that would be that would be your work. That would be to see what is your intention. Is your intention to badmouth, or is your intention to help your friend, right? And it could be either, and or both, and. <laughs> And we have to, so that's probably where some, some kind of uh, inquiry into your own motivation would be helpful before speaking, to know where you're coming, and you might, and if you're, and also to see what your friend wants, you know, because sometimes the friend would want the benefit of your insight, and sometimes not, right? Um, this, is, this seems like this is opening up a lot. Uh, uh, did you want to just add a little piece? 
Yeah. So you might you might do a version your own version of David's experiment, which is what would it be like for three hours not to be not to include judgments or opinions in your speech, and to experiment like that, and it's um, it's it's hard. I think that. I think that this is, this is, as it were, part of ongoing work with all these qualities, because if we would only speak when we had no judgments, using meaning by judgment, sort of negative, or positive, but positive evaluations that maybe come out of some attachment or aversion. That's, and that's, it's a complicated, I'm actually going to talk about judgments, I think, in, in July. It's, uh, it's a, it's a very important subject, but let's just say that you were talking about um, um, ways of speaking that were not so balanced. And I'm not sure if that's what you were referring to. Well, if we weren't going to speak unless we were free of all judgments, opinions, attachments, aversions, um, we would be a hermit. <laughs> And so somehow we have to do the best we can. And a lot of these tools are just ways of getting a little bit of perspective and distance and space so that we begin to work with this. And there, there are a lot of different tools to do that. I think if you see which of those, you know, I've given really uh, four guidelines, truthfulness, helpfulness, kindness, and clear intention, and if it helps to rephrase those for yourself, do that. But those are some uh, uh, principles. And then I talked about three practices. One was the practice of having uh, clear intention and taking speech as a field of one's own uh, practice. Secondly, cultivating mindfulness. And thirdly, bringing an open heart to the speech. If we work with those principles and those practices, as it were, I think it's, we start to see things and we can sort out a lot of those, those issues. And it's really just to begin to have that be more and more a part of our practice. Uh, and, but it's, it's big because, it, you know, if we think of the, if we think of speech in the broadest sense of, as including speech to ourselves, which I think is, is, I haven't talked about that much, I think it's very important. We, we should employ right speech in relation to ourselves as well. We can be nice towards others and harsh towards ourselves. So, but if we think of the field of right speech as even including how we speak to ourselves, it's obviously it's large. And we, and we, so I think what I would recommend is find which, if, if anything resonated, or resonated either with what you're already doing, or where you want to grow, or your next steps in right speech, I would say don't try to do everything at once. Take one or two aspects and work with them. You know, and if it's to you know, do something like have that sheet of paper or the words on your hand, 
Well, try it out and, and do your best. So, uh, let me end just with a brief uh, loving kindness, or actually I'll do a dedication of merit just to close. And, and I'll be here for a while if anyone wants to talk further. And, we'll, and I'll be here on the 19th and I'll continue with right speech. So any, any other questions or themes we could also bring up, bring up then. But I'll particularly be focusing on some of these difficult situations uh, connected with speech. Letting our minds settle and our hearts settle. And inviting whatever learning has been most important from the morning. Maybe something that uh, I said or that someone else said or something that just occurred to you as we were together. Is there something that I'd like to focus on that I take out of this morning session for the benefit of my, of my practice? An idea, a practice, an intention? May we dedicate the merit of our time together. Whatever insight or value or clear intention that's come out of the morning, may we share it with all beings in our lives as we go outside the hall. May we share the merit of our time with all, knowing that all beings aspire towards happiness, towards love, towards wisdom. We all beings use the energy of their speech for awakening. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.